You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Eduardo Masudi, who is using Phoenix and Elixir to build a hosted status page and monitoring platform. Eduardo, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Um, sure. So my name is Eduardo Mesuti. Uh, I'm from Bolivia. I live in Berlin, Germany for five years now. And I founded um, here StatusPal uh, around four years ago. Yeah, and basically what we do is provide hosting status pages uh, with monitoring. So basically help our customers communicate incidents and maintenance events. And we try to differentiate uh, with some automations and monitoring. Nice. So when it comes to those automations, do you want to give an example of like what differentiates you from other status pages? Um, sure. So for starters, we have integrated monitoring, so we can monitor your services uh, without any external monitoring service. Uh, so even though, even though it's pretty simple monitoring, a lot of our customers use it and this helps them automate creating and closing incidents when as they happen so their customers can know immediately that they are on top of it. Um, another example is that we have recurrent maintenances so they, our customers can configure um, a maintenance to get triggered automatically based on some recurrent configuration so once per month or once per week every Wednesday or something like that. Very nice. So you mentioned four years ago. So has this app been up and running since then? Yes, four years running in production already. So like at the end of 2017. Awesome. And yeah, using Phoenix and Elixir, it's cool to see that you have the service running for so long, considering back then Elixir was much newer than today. Absolutely. Um, when I started, um, Elixir was much more new than now, like much, much less established and less used. But it really looked very interesting to me as a Ruby and Rails developer. It looked like the next thing um, that would kind of improve on the things that Ruby on Rails or Ruby wasn't as good, like concurrency and performance. Yeah, starting so early actually had its drawbacks. Like we got beaten by like some changes at the beginning with Phoenix. Once, for example, context context were introduced and uh, models were removed from the like the the way things were built and schemas started to uh, models become schemas and yeah this actually be needed a huge refactor on our side right so i don't know if you remember the exact details because it was so many years ago but do you recall like how long it took you to go from basically you know like an empty folder to shipping the first version of your app um i think and the thing is, I wasn't doing it full time and it really started as a very side and hobby project. So it's hard to tell, but I would say if I put together like the hours that I that I started working until I had like a working solution, like MVP level, I would say a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Right. That's really not that bad considering, you know, brand new ecosystem, you know, language web framework, and then just building like a real thing that people are starting to use. Absolutely. So it's very cool to see that was up and running. Now, uh, before you mentioned we, so is it just you building the project or do you have a couple of developers in the team or is it kind of like you and then like a non-technical founder or something? Um, it started as a solo project. Um, 
I mean, I'm still the solo founder, but now I have a small agency of two helping me with development uh, for the last couple of months. Before that, I had uh, some freelancers uh, part-time helping me, um, but I was still doing most of the development. Um, yeah, nowadays I, I get to focus a little bit more on the marketing and business side of things, and, and most of the development is done by this uh, small team. Right. Do you still find yourself popping in the code base just because you enjoy coding? Absolutely, yeah. From time to time, I, I enjoy looking at um, what's going on or at least planning the features. And so yeah, I would definitely still consider myself the CTO because I'm still like um, directing uh, what we do technically. But yeah, hopefully I will go less and less on, onto that side, but still enjoy definitely coding. Right. Now, if you're open to sharing, you know, certain figures like this, but like what type of traffic do you typically deal with in your day to day? Like how many, you know, metrics or, you know, we didn't get into the details yet, but I would imagine you ping these sites for uptime every minute or five minutes or whatever. Like how many events do you deal with typically? Um, I don't have numbers on the monitoring side of things, but I I can say um, the Elixir server, it's receiving around one half million requests per day, for example. And this is after going through Nginx where we do some catching. If I look at the Nginx logs, I'm, I'm we're receiving something around 3 million requests per day. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is no joke at all. And, you know, earlier you mentioned kind of like, well, you know, you are into Ruby, but the concurrency factor of that maybe brought you to using Elixir. And yeah, like a status page thing is like the perfect example of, you know, if you have a thousand clients and they each need to have a status check happen every minute, then it's like you're just doing a thousand requests per minute, right? Like every time you ping their site, minus like maybe caching or whatever. But is that kind of what motivated you to use Elixir in the end, like that type of use case? Yeah, definitely. Um, I thought um, I was going to be doing some real-time notifications, some monitoring. Um, I needed to deliver status pages for my customers so their customers can view them and I would get, be getting... Um, pretty high loads. Um, so I thought it was a very good project to try Elixir on. Definitely improving on the, the fallacies of the, the issues that Ruby on Rails, that I faced with Ruby on Rails in the past. Right. And yeah, it's such a funny thing. Like having a status page in general is such a nice thing to have, especially, you know, if you're a tech company, so your uh, users can look at it, but like your, stat, your host's status page needs to be so reliable that it's like basically never down. So like, what are some things that you've done to kind of ensure that your status pages for your customers are kind of always up? I understand like, you know, it's never going to be a hundred percent because there's always going to be downtime somewhere, but uh, like, what has that experience been like for you so far? Um, well, um, I, I, at the beginning I had a few uh, issues like servers would go down for, for some reasons that I didn't anticipate as I was getting familiar with, with Elixir, but after, after some time and I got familiar and got to, to do things properly, uh, it really started to shine on the foul tolerant side of it. And yeah, nowadays there is no real issue with, with Elixir. Like the server is never experiencing issues with organic traffic or with our customers. The only time for the last years that we see that we've seen any downtime has been related to, for example, Daniel of service attacks where, where we haven't been able to manage that, that moment and we, are, we have been improving on that side. But 
yeah, it's been very, very stable. Um, yeah, our percentage of, of uptime is, is very high, very close to 99%. Yeah, right before we hopped on the call here, I took a look at your own, your own status page that's, you know, using your own service, I presume. And uh, yeah, it was like 100% uptime. I forget the exact time span it gives you by default, but it was like for 60 days, maybe, or 30 mm -hmm. days? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's 60 days right now. Very cool. So going back to what you said before, you know, you started this project early on. Back then, Phoenix contacts weren't a thing. Uh, do you recall like how much code you had using the older version of Phoenix without that and like what that process was like to upgrade or, you know, update the code base? That was actually pretty hard. That took uh, maybe like a week of coding. Um, it was a huge refactor, uh, a lot of touching, a lot of um, files. Yeah, the, I, I was also having a hard time wrapping my head around contexts at the beginning and I, I couldn't quite get it. But after some time, it definitely makes sense. And yeah, the, the code base at the, at, at right now, it's actually pretty nice and consistent. Nice. Yeah, I was basically the same. Like I didn't start using Phoenix and Elixir that early, but the idea of creating context, it took me a long time of just trying to figure out what that actually means. But now it's like, when you think back and look back, it's like, okay, well, basically just a way for you to group up common functionality into a name, like giving it a name. I'm curious with your situation where you had all of that code written beforehand, like, you know, you had uh, basically your whole app been running, like, did you find it easier to move over to context then? Because you kind of already fleshed out your domain quite a bit. It just wasn't like organized, let's say. It was actually a bit problematic because I started not having the, this whole context um, concept. So I organized it completely different and then trying to put it back together in, into context was a bit hard. And actually there is still a few things that are not in, in the right place and that need to be a bit refactored. But no, right now it's it's fine for at least new, when I start, I've started new projects with Phoenix and it's much nicer and, and easier from the beginning. <laughs> nice. So going back to your Phoenix and Elixir setup here, do you want to talk a little bit about some either Elixir or Phoenix features specifically that you're using? Like, are you using Phoenix channels? Like, any features of OTP? Um, nothing fancy, really. No no channels or no WebSockets. Um, one thing that I'm very happy that we started using a couple of months ago, it's Oban, um, the background job uh, processor, or, mm -hmm. yeah, for for processing background jobs. Um, uh, this is, we are very happy with it. and. It alleviated um, because Phoenix and Elixir is so nice with concurrency that you can actually do anything in one request and you can start a, a new task and and run anything there and, and just so you don't have to worry at the beginning to have let's say a job processing library and so we we get away with not having that for quite some years. <laughs> And, but now that we started using Oban, it's it's even nicer. Right. Yeah, I love Oban's philosophy of just storing it all into Postgres. It just seems like maybe that wouldn't be a good thing to do. But when you try it out in practice and it's dealing with, you know, thousands of requests per second or whatever, like it totally works out totally fine. Like, I really like that. Absolutely. It's been it's been a bliss. So when it comes to using Oban, by the way, do you happen to use the open source version or do you use their paid offering? Uh, the open source for now. Maybe in the future we'll try the debate if, if we need it. Right. So in your mix file, do you want to go over maybe some packages that you've installed to help build your app? Well, we definitely need the Stripity Stripe package for, for Stripe. And funny, th funny thing is at the beginning, I started with the 
with another package from that is that was also for the Stripe library. And at some point we had to switch to to strip it Stripe because that other one was unmaintained actually, and that was a bit of a mess. But somehow they were very close compatible. Anything fancy that we have in a mix file? Maybe like what do you use for sending emails out? Or... Oh yeah, yeah. So for sending emails, for example, we have the Mailgun um, package um, for our internal uh, transactional emails and our domain. We use Mailgun, but we also enable our customers to send their notification, their email notifications through also their own integration through Mailgun or SendGrid or uh, SMTP actually, so they can configure their own SMTP server credentials. And for this, we actually have a separate, and this is the only, or one of the only two microservices or services outside of our monolith. Uh, it's an SMTP API uh, library that we created for it's basically very close or even feature parity to the Mailgun API. So we can send transactional emails through our customer through our customers' SMTP servers. So it basically translates uh, a request with batch transactional emails into making multiple requests to our customers' SMTP servers. And we use Oban again for this. Ah, very cool. So by the way, like I'm not trying to like grill your tech choices here, but making that separate API service, was there a reason why you didn't use a library like Bamboo or Swoosh or something like that? Um, yeah, because I didn't find any that actually supported batch sending emails through SMTP. Ah. So you get, yeah, I, I tried um, at least with Bamboo, I think, or Swash, Swoosh, um, and they didn't support it. They, you would basically try to send an email like that and it would you would have all of the <laughs> recipients in the in the header instead of having, instead of being transactional email. Right. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I've only used Bamboo at a basic level, right? Just like sending transactional emails in my own apps. I've never done anything beyond that. But cool to see that uh, using Open there as well to send all those out, you know, expected in some type of background job. But mm -hmm. part of using Open, I guess, like the reason why you, you're using Open in the first place, is that because it gave you some guarantees like uniqueness and all sorts of other good stuff that it does? Absolutely. Re retries mostly also in case some some work fails and it, it, it has some logic for retrying, right? Mm -hmm. So back to your application here, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about a couple of libraries that you have in your mix file, but uh, at least what I found in the Elixir community is we tend to write a lot of our own code because, I mean, I guess at the business domain level, right, you have a lot of code to write. And you mentioned that you do send out notifications to your customers when certain things happen. Did you write your own like notification abstraction where you can send things over email or SMS or like webhooks and stuff? Yes, actually. Uh, we have basically a notification.x abstraction that where you have the different um, channels for, for sending these notifications and it's kind of like abstracted away. And yeah, this underlying, underneath it's basically calling either the Mailgun API or the Twilo API or um, Twitter API to send uh, tweets also. Very cool. Do you send uh, like webhook notices out too as well or no? Uh, yes, also, also yeah. Uh, we For webhooks, we actually will also soon implement uh, or improve it with, with Oban because at the moment there is not retrial of webhooks. They're they are in the most simple implementation stage. 
right? And by the way, I'm just curious, uh, which HTTP client do you use to send those hooks out? Uh, I use HTTP, HTTP Potion. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually, I actually realized not long ago that I think it's getting dip, um, unmaintained and Tesla seems to be the new <laughs> shiny thing coming. So yeah, we might try that soon. Right. Yeah, I remember looking into HTTP clients with Elixir and it was like, oh, I heard you like HTTP clients. And then there was like a list of like 18 of them to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Oh, but HTTP portion, it's been pretty well so far. Like you can create a a small client library for for any other service easily in, in a little module. And so it works pretty well so far. Nice. So when it comes to things like formatting your code base or doing like static analysis, do you use any tools besides mixed format? Not at the moment. We, we just do some mixed format from time to time. Okay. Do you have any custom rules set up for that one or is it just like straight up default? <laughs> just straight up default. Um, I, I want to include some some automation probably in our GitHub actions around that at some point. Right. What about uh, localizing that too with like pre-commit hooks and stuff? Yeah, that that might also be a, an option. I've seen that before, but it also tends to be annoying when, when weird things happen when you try to commit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's also, I don't know, I never found really a great solution for pre-commit hooks because it's one of those things where if you have a couple developers, you want everyone to have the same hooks, but the, the hooks are stored in a Git folder that is ignored from version control. So it's like you need to install an external tool to like write your hooks in a different abstraction, like YAML or whatever. Yeah, it gets complicated. Yeah, and sometimes they start failing. You're you're missing something, some library breaks, or, or you miss some package. And for some, for some reason, you try to push and it's not working anymore. Right. So by the way, speaking of just like, you know, formatting and linting and stuff, when it comes to tests, uh, do you know roughly like how many tests you have and like how long it takes for your test suite to run? Mm, I don't have a number on how many tests we have, but we have we basically cover uh, any anything that is like essential, like that have some logical uh, important important logic that we need to make sure that it's working and correct. Um, like I don't know around billing, around sending notifications. All the main features are covered, and in the in the, the, in the GitHub actions, I think it takes around two minutes to run the tests, maybe a bit less, depending on the times. Sometimes it's faster, but yeah, something something around that. Locally, it takes seconds. It's very fast. Right. Yeah, it's not too bad at all. And uh, yeah, seconds. Is that seconds to run the whole test suite or just like, okay, run all the tests in this file? Uh, they run it, all, all the tests. At least in my in my M1 <laughs> now, it used to be slower in my 2015 MacBook Pro. Yeah, that must have been a big upgrade. <laughs> yeah. So, by the way, earlier you mentioned you know, you made this separate you know microservice or whatever you want to call it for dealing with the mail setup there. What was your thought process behind breaking that out versus including it into the main app? Um, I think it made sense because it was very well defined and completely separate and independent um, function that it had. And it also, I also saw the possibility of having it released in the future either as an open source uh, project so anybody can have this functionality of sending transactional email through existing SMTP servers, either that or maybe creating a service or that our customers can also use. Um, so I, I think it, it made sense in, in that regard. 
Right. And now did that always start as its own separate service from day one, or did you like extract that out of the main code base at some point? That one actually started from the beginning as a, as a separate service because it, it really clicked when I thought about it. I, I thought, okay, this really sounds like a, something that can be separate. Right. And do you have both of those then sitting in their own independent Git repos then? So like they can be independently deployed? Yes. Yes. And actually, the, another reason was that we didn't have Oban back then in, in the main repo yet, and this one needed Oban. So I thought it was easier to start and try it in, in a separate uh, independent project. Okay, that makes sense. And and do both of these services share the same database? I mean, we didn't talk about which one to use, but I'm guessing like Postgres? Uh, well, with Open. Uh, they both use Postgres, but they are separate. Like the SMTP API, as, as we call it, it's actually in Heroku. It's the only, <laughs> it's the only app that we have in Heroku because uh, everything else we have in DigitalOcean. So they're completely independent. Yeah, that's nice to see that not only did you isolate the services themselves, but they all they both have their own database. So it's purely, purely in their own, you know, own world. Absolutely. Cool. So we talked a little bit about the Git repo there, you know, separate repos, but do you want to maybe give a rundown on like the size of the code base that we're dealing with for both of the services? I understand that you're not going to be able to be like, well, we have like, you know, 47,000 lines of code, but you know, we're dealing with like hundreds of modules, dozens, like how many contexts do you have and stuff like that? Um, I have a rough number on lines of code, actually. Um, for Elixir, we have around 28,000 lines of code. And for JavaScript, just 2,000, around 2,000. Okay. Yeah. So just by looking at those numbers, it sounds like it is very much like a traditional server rendered app using like EEX templates with sprinkles of JavaScript? Very much, yes. Okay. And before we get into that a little bit, do you want to maybe run down a couple of contexts that you have? Like what are the names and like kind of, you don't need to go through all of them, but maybe some of the interesting ones. Sure, sure. Um, so there is one that is a little bit too big and <laughs> too many things on it. It's called SPM, like short for Status Page Management. <laughs> was a dumb name I came, um, I came up with at the beginning when I still didn't fully understand context. Probably nowadays I would just have called it Status Pages. Then there is, what else we have? There is Accounts Context where everything related to users and accounts lives, um, memberships, stuff like that. Um, there is one clients where the HTTP clients and non-HTTP, every, every type of client for separate for external services live there. Um, a, there is a coherence context for our, uh, for the coherent uh, package that we use for authentication. And we are looking into switching uh, upgrading that to POW. And metrics for the metrics that we display in the status pages. Yeah, I think those are the main ones. Okay. So you mentioned coherence and maybe you know updating to POW later on. Have you looked into using the official auth generators from Phoenix now or no? Um, I haven't looked into that actually. Um, we did, um, our team did a small research and, and POW was on the top of list of candidates. And then there is also Guardian, but yeah, actually we might uh, take a look at, at these generators. I, I remember I heard about them, but I didn't look close into any. Right. And by the way, speaking of Phoenix, do you happen to run like the latest stable version of that? Uh, we run Wine 1.5. So it's not the latest, latest, but I think it's close. Yeah. I don't think, at least at the time I'm making this call, it's like 1.6 isn't out yet. Okay. So I guess it's, <laughs> it is. 
Okay. So going back to, you know, what you said before about this mostly being a server rendered application with sprinkles of JavaScript. I'm a huge fan of that as well. Just curious though, you know, so many other folks go down the other route of it's like, you know, single page application. Like, did you weigh the pros and cons versus like both of those? Like what made you go with that one in the end? Um, I, I wasn't um, completely like sold on, on going one route or the other. Uh, my philosophy is just to start simple and see from there, basically, we, you can always iterate and, and change direction. And I also thought that there was no nothing crazy, dynamic, or too interactive um, in the UI that really needed some single-page application from my point of view. And yeah, I think still it's the case, and I don't see a reason why we would need to to change at the moment. Um, yeah, it's it's working pretty well so far. Um, at most, I think I might go with adding turbo links, and that would give us a lot of the nice things about single page application. Right, just like fast page transitions and partial updates with the new turbo stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and even even now without that, Phoenix is pretty fast and. I, I feel that it's very close to, to that right now. Right. And speaking of like Turbolinks uh, and, you know, maybe improving certain pages or whatever, uh, have you looked into using uh, Live View at all for that or no? Um, yeah, my my colleague from my team member is thinking about it. Yeah, he's, he's, and I found it because I haven't tried it yet, Phoenix, but while I was looking for for some f- contractor to hire and, and come help with the project, I realized that, a lot of them are using it or have experience with Live View and they're eager to continue to use it. So it might be something that, at least for some component, when whenever we need really more interactivity, uh, we we might try it. Right. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to like break down your whole business, but it would be kind of cool like if you ran a status page and you were looking at it just like the page is loaded, and then I don't know, like maybe you can broadcast some type of change, right? Like the status change from bad to good or something. So like you see a green thing instead of a red thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a candidate for it, definitely. Right. So when it comes to the front end, then uh, the JavaScript aspect, do you use a specific library like jQuery or StimulusJS or Alpine or whatever? Yeah, still still using jQuery when when needed. And there is only one component. I don't recall exactly where where we use Preact, where it actually made sense to to have that set up instead of writing plain JavaScript and jQuery and fighting with the DOM elements and trying to inject stuff in there. Right. Do you want to give us an example of what that component was? Like what part of the page? I think I think it was the some place in the status page. I think it might be the, um, not the history graph, the performance chart, performance graph, the uptime chart, yes. I think it's that one. Um, in order to build that, I think we needed a bit more interactivity. Um, but yeah, other than that, just a fan of uh, Bootstrap. That's helping a lot. Um, speed development process a lot. Not having to have to think about how things will look and basically just customize as we need Bootstrap. And it looks pretty nice in my opinion. Yeah, your whole page looks nice. Like the landing page, the status page itself. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, thanks. And that chart was very cool looking too at the bottom of the status page. <laughs> nice, thanks. So when it comes to using Bootstrap, uh, I know Bootstrap 5 recently came out and I don't expect you to be like, yeah, we, we updated in like two days because that would be a very big update. But uh, like what version of Bootstrap do you use? Uh, 4, 4.3, I think. Um, I still remember when we upgrade from 3. 
yeah, touching a lot of templates. Yeah, it wasn't super nice, <laughs> but it wasn't also that bad. It wasn't a nightmare. So yeah, I I might go for Bootstrap Five, but who knows? Maybe even try something like Tailwind, which looks pretty interesting. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what the upgrade process looks like yet from four to five for Bootstrap, but if it's a, if, yeah, you're right though. Like if it's a huge upgrade from four to five, like you have to rewrite all your templates and a million things change. Yeah. If you're going to want to jump to Tailwind, like now that would be the time to do it. Exactly. Yeah. And Tailwind, Tailwind definitely has its niceties. Now on the topic of front end here, do you use something like Webpack then to manage all of your assets? Mm -hmm. Yes. Webpack building. Um, and we have, I think like three or four entry points like one is for the admin side one is for the status pages and one is for like the embed widget that we have um yeah, i think those are the three. Oh, very cool so do you want to talk a little bit about that embed widget then because uh, is that just for your customers that you know they would embed that into their app but like what does that yes, look like yes pretty much yeah. so they can embed their uh, status badge in their website so their customers can right uh, from their website know okay if this there is an incident going on they will see a little red dot and they hover and see incident ongoing then they can click and go directly to their status page and find out what's going on and yeah that's a very very minimal uh, piece of javascript that we provide for them that's basically making a requester to one of our api endpoints that is a uh, very highly caged <laughs> since this is being requested from every website from our customers. Nice. Now, on the topic of that, do you want to go into maybe how you deal with uh, access control for something like that? So like if you embed Google Analytics, you know, they give you like whatever, like a universal idea or whatever. Do you have like a similar type of strategy? Like how does that end up so you can only see the status page for your own page? Um, no, on that side, it's actually you just embed your status page with your... Um, not no nothing fancy. It's not hidden. You just need the the domain of uh, the subdomain of of your status page, and yeah, you append that to the to the JavaScript snip code snip that we provide, and you use that, and that's it. Um, actually, anybody could use it to display any status of another status page in their website, but um, they that wouldn't uh, harm us, I guess, or or our customers. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Of course. Like you can take an iframe and just embed google.com like into your page. Like it's the same thing. Yeah. Especially since they are, these ones are public status pages. Right. And by the way, spe speaking of like subdomains and stuff, so can your customers then, they can hook up their own subdomain for their own custom domain and host your status page? Oh yeah, absolutely. They can configure their own domain. So basically status.yourwebsite.com or yourwebsitestatus.com. Uh, as you wish, you can point it to us and we'll generate the SS, SSL certificates for you. And yeah, you, it, this is all automated and you'll have your, your status page with your own domain. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be a fun thing to talk about here because, yeah, when you're introducing a new client or, you know, they hook up a custom domain name, you are on the fly basically registering an SSL cert, I guess, for that. I mean, are you using uh, Let's Encrypt for that or no? Yes, pretty much. Let's Encrypt uh, with CertBot to generate a new certificate every time. Have you run into any limitations there, like when it comes to Let's Encrypt's rate limits? Yeah, yeah. At the beginning, we faced those uh, limits and basically the solution was to start checking for the C name before we allow them to 
to, before we attempt to to generate the certificate. So first we check um, the DNS record if it exists for their domain, uh, the C name or uh, whatever record we request for them. And if it's there, then we try to generate a certificate. That way we prevent these uh, rate limits because um, it's not like customers are doing this all the time and, and so many are coming that, like per hour that we would reach the limits unless we we fail to generate certificates. Right. I guess that would be a really great problem to have. It's like, damn it, like yeah. I'm getting 50 new signups <laughs> that, per hour. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah. I kind of wonder though, like how would that work out if you started hitting those limits? I know you can like email Let's Encrypt directly. Maybe they can raise it. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Maybe Let's Encrypt Pro or something. No idea. <laughs> but what about uh, like renewals though? Like I'm not, I forget the exact limits they have in terms of that, but isn't there like a domain limit for just actual renewal renewals? Like that would be like all of your customers. Um, I haven't faced that limit and I'm not aware w what is the number, but yeah, that's, that's a good question. We haven't faced any limits yet in that regard. And we are still success successfully generating new ones and renewals without issue. Right. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. It's not like everyone's signing up like on the first of the month, it's all staggered. So the renewals happen at different intervals. Yeah, exactly. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk about the rest of your tech stack. So, you know, Phoenix and Elixir, Postgres, uh, do you happen to use anything else like Redis or different services? Yeah, no, actually not Redis yet. Um, I, I don't think we will need it. I I thought I, we might need it for the um, background job, but thanks to Oban, we don't yet. <laughs> and yeah, that's one of the things that I'm very happy actually about Elixir is that you can get a lot of things out of the gate um, out of the box without having to use separate services. So, so far, I think it's really just Postgres, Elixir, Phoenix, Nginx, yes, on the front of everything. Yeah, I think those are the main ones. Okay, do you use anything like ETS inside of Elixir or no? For maybe caching or whatever? Uh, yeah, I think we use that for caching, yeah. Yes, so we have that, um, that's one level of caching, and then we have Catching at the level of Nginx and Cloudflare, thanks to catching headers in the in the, in the HTTP responses. Right, and yeah, I guess Cloudflare also helps you out a little bit with those DDoS attacks. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, at least for for the main domain, yes. For our customers' domain, they don't cover us because then that's outside of Cloudflare. Hmm. But I guess your customers, if they hooked up you know, their own domain name separately. Like they could use Cloudflare for their protection if they want, but it's not like up to you, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I cannot require them to use Cloudflare. Right, that makes sense. And by the way, for your Nginx setup, is there anything interesting about that? Like are you using stock open source Nginx and then kind of just using it as a reverse proxy, SSL terminations, static files, and whatever? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Nothing fancy is just as a reverse proxy. Um, interesting, I guess, um, or out of the normal is that it's also used for serving the static marketing side, which is now a Hugo static side generated. And that's in a separate folder where it serves as a static uh, HTML, basically. That's that's working also pretty well. It's very, very fast and responsive. Yeah, I noticed when I loaded that page, it was just like, boom, finger snapped, like 20 milliseconds. We're really happy with that. <laughs> Yep. So when it came to picking Hugo, I know there's so many different static site generators, like almost as many as HTTP clients in Elixir. Yeah. Like how did you narrow it down to like Jekyll versus Hugo versus Gatsby versus uh, Pelican and like 800 other ones? Um, I tried Jekyll before, so I came from Jekyll and then 
I liked Ugo better. Then I guess yeah, that 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 was all the all there was. I I just thought it looked cool. I tried it and I liked it, and it's working pretty well. And what else? Yeah, I also tried Gatsby afterwards and actually found it a little bit more cumbersome to get at least the same. Like I had to do more configuration and stuff compared to Hugo just to get a like a static site and and let's say a collection like like the list of integrations that we have in Hugo in Hugo or our blog post our blog sorry yeah I haven't used Gatsby personally I happen to use Jackal but Hugo has always been on my radar but I feel like it, it's hard to switch static site generators if you already have like a big site yeah no idea how that would look I I don't think I would <laughs> I would. Maybe just keep going with Jekyll if you can. <laughs> but yeah, going from Jekyll to Hugo, I, I definitely like Hugo better, actually. Nice. Yeah, I'll look into it at some point. In fact, like the runningandproduction.com site is a Jekyll site. Ah, nice. No, Jekyll is nice, but Hugo, I like it better. And it's faster. And building is faster. And yeah, I just like it overall. No, that's a big deal, too. It's like if you're building the whole page and it takes 45 seconds, if you can do it in two, that's a lot nicer. Yeah. Yeah, the status pile uh, side, is it has a lot of, of pages now, and, and building takes just seconds. Cool. So by the way, uh, on the topic of tech stacks, do you happen to use Docker either in development or production or both or neither? Um, in production um, um, and staging. <laughs> yeah, no, it's everything Dockerized. Um, for development, actually, um, uh, my colleague is, my team member is using it in development. <laughs> no idea how his experience was. I think I think he just got it running in like a day. Um, but no, for development, I I was pretty happy using just ASDF for for Elixir and Erlang version management. And just, I think I was using NVM for Node and that was pretty fine, pretty much. Okay, and up until I switched to the M1 MacBook Pro, now it's a bit of a mess. Right. Yeah, that makes sense too. I mean, with the Phoenix and Elixir stack, it's not like you're, you need to spin up like seven different services, right? It's basically the Phoenix web server, Postgres, which is probably already running in the background. And then it's like, what, like the Webpack Watcher? Or maybe that's even part of Phoenix, so you don't even need to worry about it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's part of it. Right. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about how you have things set up on the hosting side. So before we get into like, you know, specifics about deployment, but uh, let's go into like, where are you actually hosting everything besides the API server you mentioned being on Heroku? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so most of everything is running on DigitalOcean Droplets. Yeah, I, I, I picked it over, let's say AWS, um, mostly because of its simplicity and also was pretty cheap and and easy to get started. Yeah, just I tried it for a couple of other personal projects and, and I was always happy with it. And so I've continued with it so far. And then there is the SMTP API, which is on Heroku. That's the only one that's outside of DigitalOcean. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what made you roll with going uh, with Heroku on that one instead of DigitalOcean? <laughs> um, I guess I wanted to try... Uh, yeah, I didn't want to have to set up, uh, again, Docker and everything into a, into an Ubuntu instance in, in DigitalOcean. Now that there is like four, four, five, four five servers... It's some time on to put to man, to maintain them, to update them, and you know do everything. So I I wanted to try uh, with Heroku this time and get free of all of that overhead. That makes sense. And for that uh, mail API server, are you just running something like one Dino or a couple Dinos, or like what type? Yeah, just one hobby Dino is enough. 
it's not like crazy um, load on that on that one. Right. So when it comes to the database side for that mail API server, are you also using the hobby tier or do you use like their first paid one? Ah, uh, no, the hobby tier. That's enough still. Cool. So I have a feeling we have a lot of great stuff to talk about on the DigitalOcean side of things because you mentioned, you know, four or five servers running there. Before we get into like what those servers do, do you want to go over maybe like what the hardware specs of those four or five servers are? Like which deal plan do you subscribe to? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in the in the biggest repository, uh, which we call Status HiQ, uh, which is kind of like a monolith, um, that one is running in a in a, a bit big-ish uh, server. Um, I think it's eight gigabytes of RAM and four cores for CPUs, virtual CPUs. Um, then for the the other service that we have, which is the monitoring service, that one is uh, half of that. So like. 40 gigabytes of RAM and like two CPU, two virtual CPUs. Then the other servers are for like staging and backup. So those are like, I think the minimum. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, it's also kind of cool and funny at the same time to hear it's like, we have these big beefy servers, but it's like ugh, two CPU cores and four gigs of RAM, like 15 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month. And here it is like running like a, you know, a real production load on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Elixir doesn't require that much uh, resources. And it's very efficient at using them. Yeah, for sure. So do you happen to know like what your average load is on both of those servers? You know, the main ones? Um, the load is, it's, um, it doesn't get to 50%. It's always under that. So it's, it's very uh, underused. It's very well managed. Very cool. So by the way, when it comes to the database, are you using DigitalOcean's managed Postgres service? No, but um, we are looking into going that direction, most likely. So now each server basically has its own Postgres instance running. But the a couple of things that I'm really considering using in the soon in the future, in like in the next months for from DigitalOcean, it's also their managed database and their load balancers and their, their Kubernetes, their managed Kubernetes. And what I find interesting about the load balancer is that I think they can also manage certificates. So that would be really nice to get that um, of our servers. Yeah, that's definitely uh, a nice thing to have because sure, let's encrypt insert bot, not that bad to set up, but to not even have to worry about it is just like one, you know, you sleep better at night. Why not? Exactly, yeah. And by the way, for all of these servers, uh, which operating system do you use? Um, Ubuntu, um, I think 20, yeah, we updated. Okay, cool. That's actually something fresh that we can talk about. So uh, Ubuntu 20 LTS, latest one at the time. Uh, do you want to go over like what the process was like for you to update from the previous version to the new one? Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't crazy. I think we faced a couple of challenges at the beginning. There was something not yeah, there was something not quite working. It wasn't letting us upgrade because there was some package that somehow was. Not getting recognized, not getting recognized, or basically getting us stuck. So we just removed that, and after that, I think it was just running one command. And yeah, it wasn't actually hard. It was. It just took a good couple of minutes, maybe, maybe less, a bit less than an hour, everything, and then we were up, back and running. Right. I like that update process. You're like, well, this thing's being problematic. Let me just like throw it away, and then everything just works. Yeah. So it's like maybe you didn't even need it somehow, and then it, I don't know. It works. That's cool. When it came to that update, though, did you like spin up a brand new server with, you know, Ubuntu 20, install all of your stuff, and then 
flip the DNS over to the new server so there was no downtime or like minimal downtime? Like how did that end up working out in practice? Um, no, I actually just used the command that um, the command that Ubuntu provides for this. Like an apt-get upgrade? Yeah, pretty much. I, I notified our customers, created a, a, a maintenance event in our, in our status page and let them know we were going to have this downtime. And yeah, we just run the command. Um, so it took, yeah, a couple of a good couple of minutes, but then we were back and running. So you mentioned, you know, you do have a couple of servers, some of them staging, some of them prod. Uh, do you want to go over how you manage all of these servers? Like, do you happen to just SSH in and run commands manually, or do you use something like Ansible for configuration management? Um, for configuration, I, I, it's, it's still everything manual, but I try to basically keep uh, the configuration to the minimum, like not needing, not having anything dependent on each, on each server because we have everything dockerized. So the only thing outside, the only thing state that we have like outside of uh, Docker is basically the certificates and Nginx and, and the files that our customers upload. So yeah, that's why we want to migrate all of those things out soon. And, and that then we will be very happy. But so far, yeah, we just SSH for deploying, though we just um, have a command uh, that basically uses Docker Compose to pull the new uh, version of, of the image that we are using and and re, re, restarts and respawns the new Docker uh, container. Ah, very cool to see that you are using Compose in production because I'm also a huge fan of using Docker Compose in production because when you have like a one box server, it, it works perfectly. Like no complexity, just Docker Compose update and you're done. Yes, pretty much. We are very happy with that so far. Of course, like you say, you need to pull down a new image and stuff, but yeah, there's no complication really. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, at the beginning I was still like building the images locally, running tests and building them locally, and I think it took me uh, longer than it should to uh, decide to move this outside into a GitHub action. And now it's all automated. We just push to master, and this gets uh, tested. And if it's passing, it, it builds a, the Docker image, and this is ready to just run one command and push it to production or staging. Nice. And when it comes to those images, where do you have them hosted at? Uh, Docker registry. Okay. So you're on like or whatever, some tiered pay plan for that? Yeah, I think it's like the smallest uh, plan from Docker. Uh, Docker for docker.com. Yeah, there's. Right. So before we really like dive into like your deployment process and stuff, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about, I mean, you haven't implemented this yet, but like what it would look like to update your current setup to start using Kubernetes? Like, are you are you even the one in control of that? I mean, you mentioned like you play a CTO role here because you're the founder and stuff, but like, is that going to be you doing that work or is that going to be like a contract worker? Um, for the moment, it would be me unless I manage to find somebody that can take a bit more on that role. But at the moment, it would have to be me. Yeah, it would be nice. And and I, I'm actually looking to somebody that, do, that could take on that role. Uh, until until then, it would have to be me. Do you want to go into like some details of like like what are some pain points you're hitting now where it's like, well, if I had a Kubernetes cluster running and all my services were there, you know, maybe life would be easier. Um, life is life is very easy at the moment, and there is nothing. Um, let's say like organ like our traffic, it's perfectly managed. There's no problem. I guess the only issue uh, is having a single point of failure. So that's something that I want to change pretty soon. And that's why, yeah, Docker Kubernetes with a 
a bunch of nodes running behind a load balance behind their load balancer will solve that issue and yeah other than that being able to scale up really quickly in case we have another uh, denial of service attack in the future that we are not able to like block and just basically being able to increase and scale up really quickly uh, if that happens so those i guess those two are the the main problems and would be really nice also to be able to abstract away the certificates handling right yeah those are all very great points for sure and uh, i mean you didn't like directly say this i guess but it, i guess every time right now when you know you mentioned you do have like single point of failure but if you deploy a new version of your code is there a couple seconds of downtime while Compose is restarting everything? Yes, very few seconds. Yeah, like three, four seconds, I think. Right. And I don't know, like you are running like a real service here, profitable, lots of customers using it, like three or four seconds of downtime once in a while, I guess for you is not like that big of a deal, right? Like I'm, I'm also on the same page with that. Like, you know, whatever, if it's down for five seconds, like it's not going to, no one's going to die over that. Yeah, exactly. Um, if it was more than that, we would definitely look into, into options. But no, it's it's pretty manageable, and and we don't need to deploy every day. But also, although we do deploy pretty often, and yeah, no customers ever complained about it. Right, but I understand like there's always the other side of the page, right? Where it's like, well, if it was on a Kubernetes cluster and there were zero downtime, like that is a lot better than five seconds of downtime. Like you would feel like maybe you can deploy more often and not have to worry about it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So by the way, I mean, right now your app runs on one service or runs one server. Have you thought about in the future, if it's running uh, on Kubernetes, you might have a couple of them running. Do you take current precautions now when it comes to things like database migrations to sort of do them in multi-steps to keep it, you know, to where technically it could be running on multiple versions of your app without conflict? Mm, that's a good question. Um, no, I don't think I have considered that to too much degree, I, I guess. Yeah, I guess we would have to move migrations to not run automatically in every node. Otherwise, that would be a nightmare. Um, no, we would have to accommodate for that, for sure. There is, I think there is a lot of things that we will need to accommodate for, and that's that's what makes it interesting. And actually, outside of DigitalOcean, I was also considering Heroku. And the main reason why I was, or I'm hesitant to go in that route is that I think they would have to, like our customers would have to migrate their certificates to them. And it just seems more problematic. Our customers would have to ask, like point their their domain records to Heroku instead of to us. And somehow we will be getting very dependent on Heroku and, and, not, and not having very easy migration out in the future if we need to. Right. Yeah, it's a really good point to think about. I never even... Didn't even cross my mind, but that would be a big deal. So do you want to rewind a little bit then and just talk a little bit more about your deploy process from, you know, start to finish? Like, okay, packing away on a new feature, it's local on my dev box. Do you want to go through all the steps to it eventually being promoted to production? Um, so yeah, we basically, um, we create a pull request in a separate feature branch. We push, uh, this, gets, this gets already tested uh, by GitHub Actions. Uh, on every branch, so we know if if they are passing, that's fine. We can uh, review and approve. Once this is merged to to master, then this gets also released as a Docker image and pushed to the Docker registry. 
and then from there we this is ready for deployment to staging or production at any point if we need to yeah i think that's that's pretty much it it's very simple and easy to to get it working okay so when when one of the developers pushes up a feature to github do you then do some type of code review before you merge that in oh yeah yeah i'm always doing the code reviews and we try to also cross review. So, so even when I create some pull requests, when I code, they also review it in case I miss something. And so, yeah, we always make sure. To... Yeah, extra set of eyes, always helpful. Yes, definitely. So then how does this work in practice then? When you merge those branches into uh, staging or something, does another GitHub action kick in to actually do the deploy so it's live on the staging server? Um, no, this is not automated yet. And so it's basically ready in the docker registry so it's just one command away that i have to run either to push it to staging or production and this is just a small bash command that's basically connecting to ssh to respective uh, server and telling it like push use this image and restart okay so there is an interesting thing to talk about there i think too so when it comes to running something like a docker compose up on your server typically I mean, you don't necessarily need your whole entire code base to exist on the server, but maybe your compose file needs to exist on the server. Do you like transfer that over manually or do you actually like just get push your code directly to your server and and then like a post receive hook kicks in and does the pull up or whatever? Um, no, actually it's the first one. I'm basically sending the Docker compose file and every time, every time that I'm pushing to staging, for example, it's pushing this file in case it changed or something, and then using that file. But this is automated, so I just run one command and pass the commit tag or or version number to to say use this tag and, and this is referenced this is already the name of the image on Docker uh, registry. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So by the way, uh, on the topic of deployments, you know, you mentioned earlier that users do have uploaded files and you know those aren't being stored uh, with docker you know they're i guess value mounted out to the file system or whatever when it comes to those files what are users uploading is this like their logo or something yeah basically that their logo or or their background image stuff like that like that we are just storing it in the in the system or the, of the server and yeah i guess this for this we will have to use amazon s3 when, once we migrate to kubernetes Oh, right. Yeah. I guess also though there's, what is it? DigitalOcean spaces, like their S3 equivalent. True. Yeah. Maybe that's an option, a good option. Cool. And by the way, when it comes to those uploads, like which library did you use at the Elixir level to deal with that? Is it like Waffle or something else? I think it's Arc. Um, I think it's called Arc. Yeah. A-R-C. I think Waffle was the more maintained version of Arc because I think the maintainer said, hey, you know, I'm kind of done with the library and then someone else took it over. Oh, okay. Interesting. We'll have to look into that one. Okay. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about planning for disasters or unexpected events. Uh, when it comes to things like your database backups, uh, which strategies do you go about that? Um, for database and overall backup, we are actually using Backup PC. And this is in a separate server, uh, in a separate uh, location, uh, which is basically pulling... Uh, it's generating a dump of the database and storing that uh, and also all of the certificates and files uploaded by the by the by our customers and so we keep that 
a backup of that once every three hours. Um, additionally, we have the DigitalOcean uh, snapshots backups that are that come uh, that they provide, and it, this happens, I think, once per week. So that's like a secondary backup, right? Have you ever gotten into a situation where you had to uh, use your backup to restore something? Um, not yet. Thanks, God. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a big insurance policy, right? Backup super important, nice to have, but hopefully you never have to use it. But yeah. Do you ever happen to do any testing just to make sure like you can restore from a backup? Or oh, not? yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, um, we tested a couple of months ago and yeah, it, it worked pretty well. Um, at least for the for the database, and yeah, we make sure that everything else is there. Also, the files, the certificates, mostly is the most important, I guess. Right. Yeah. If you lost those, what would happen then? You'd have to like regenerate all the certificates on the fly. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And that maybe you'll hit rate limits there, possibly. Po yeah, very likely. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> By the way, uh, you know, on the topic of disasters and you know things like that. Well, maybe this isn't a disaster, but like, what do you do for like monitoring and alerting and stuff? Like, do you just, I mean, you probably use your own service for this stuff, but do you have any like lower level alerts set up like DigitalOcean to tell you, hey, by the way, like the box is running out of disk space? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. No, actually, um, we prefer having a, a third party monitor, monitor us in case we go down. So we use Pingdom for, for monitoring our services. Um, so yeah, Pingdom is monitoring all of our main services. And then we also have alerts set up in DigitalOcean for high disk usage or high CPU, high RAM, all of those things. Right. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things about DigitalOcean. It's like, you just get this one server, everything is nice. You know, you have all this, uh, extra things that you get for free, right? Like those alerts, it's very easy to set up. Exactly. And metrics, you have a nice graph where you can see what's going on. Oh yeah, and, uh, we also use uh, Honey Badger for for receiving error reports. Okay, and when it comes to those errors, do you happen to recall like the last time it was like, oh crap, like we're getting like you know eighty errors for this type today? Um, I don't recall a real life uh, example of that. Like there was one background process that would error. Um, but for like sending some kind of like trial ending email or something like that, but nothing, not a real error. No, we haven't done anything. We haven't had anything major like that in, in, in a while. Right. That's always good to hear. And I guess maybe the staging server sort of helps you catch just like, you know, the last line of defense. Yeah, absolutely. No, we, we are very careful with testing and, and we try to cover everything that's the most important and crucial parts of the system. Right. What about on the topic of like monitoring and alerts and stuff? Uh, what about logging? Do you use any service for that? Oh yeah, per Paper Trail. We use Paper Trail for that. Okay. Do you find yourself going in there just looking at logs from time to time, or do you kind of just treat it as more like, okay, we're not getting a status to two hundred or something, and then you go check it out? Um, the main reason was that there was um, one error that that we got reported a couple of times, and it was very sporadic, and and we needed to go back into logs and and like find out what happened around that area around the time. And we just couldn't do that directly SSHing into the server because it could, it didn't go that much back in time. Um, I guess that's the, the main reason uh, why we set it up just a couple of weeks or, or months ago. And so far we haven't, we haven't had the chance to really use it for, for something other than how I used it for counting the, for giving you these stats for the numbers. 
Okay. And for things like Honey Badger and Paper Trail, what was the story like to get those libraries working in your app at the Elixir level? Like, did they have official SDKs that you could use or did you have to like use some community one? Um, Honey, Badger, Honey Badger, they do have one. They have a, an Elixir package. And I actually um, reported something. I, I had a talk with them and they actually improved something. Uh, on their on their library and so they were very responsive and, and I'm very happy with them so far. Paper Trail they actually have a, a image for Docker that you can somehow hook it into yeah directly you you run this container and can hook up into your into other container and start to pull directly the logs from Docker which was very easy to to set up. Mm, very nice. So yeah, at that point it's like. It's just configuring the Docker daemon to use that as a log backend instead of like just writing to a file on disk in the container or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it was really nice. So we didn't have to do any changes in our code base for that. Yeah, very cool. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? Um, let me think. <laughs> best tips? I have a couple of tips. Um, I would say pick the technology that you are the most comfortable and the most productive with. Just and also make sure that it makes sense for the project and just get going, start building and, and start testing with customers as soon as possible. Uh, get a get your MVP out of the gate, don't overthink it and iterate with feedback as soon as possible instead of putting months and months of development uh, until you finally go out in the world with something that maybe nobody know nobody wants. Right. Yeah, that's it's so easy to fall into that. I don't want to call it a trap, but like it's very easy to just sit there in isolation and code, 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 and then it's like no one uses it because it's, yeah, especially for engineers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. By the way, what was the experience like to onboard a couple of contract workers or freelancers to help develop this project? Like, did they know Elixir before you hired them, or were they just like learning it on the spot? So far, I've hired only the ones that had some experience, at least what you'd say, at least junior experience of, of Elixir. And the one that I have now, it's actually pretty good and, and, and senior level. But so far, it's it's a little bit hard to find uh, Elixir developers, but they are out there and, and you can find them. Um, I found it was better to find, for example, in elixirjobs.com, I think it is. There is this website for specifically Elixir jobs um, than other more generic things like, I don't know, LinkedIn or Upwork. Right. Yeah, I could see that. And there's also like the Elixir forums. I don't know if they accept like job offering posts, but. Yeah, stuff like that. I would definitely recommend that um, if you want to find good Elixir developers. Cool. So Eduardo, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks a lot, Nick. It was really nice have, uh, being here. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, sure thing. Um, so statuspal.io for um, any of your listen, listeners that would like to try it. And yeah, we have also a small discount for them of 10% for a year. If they want to use the discount code uh, production, they can use it. And you can find me on Twitter um, at Mesuti Ed. Okay. Yeah, I'll make sure to leave a link to all that stuff in the show notes. And by the way, when it comes to that discount code, you said the code itself is going to be production, like literally the word production? Yes, production. Awesome. Sounds good. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.